The Daily Dose is produced by Authentic You in collaboration with North Coast HIV and related programs, also known as North Coast HARP. It's jointly funded by North Coast HARP and the New South Wales Ministry of Health. And I'm Mandy Nolan. And you're listening to The Daily Dose. The Daily Dose is a podcast about the life stories of people who inject drugs. We'll be discussing substance use, addiction, self-harm, trauma and other topics that may not be appropriate for certain listeners. We encourage all of you to be in a safe space when listening to this podcast. Welcome back to The Daily Dose. Today we're in the Neil Syringe Program offices in Byron Bay. Yeah, we were there last episode talking to Marco. Today we're speaking with Nikki. It's squishy in the office, but it creates an instant intimacy. It's clear that people feel safe in this space. I mean, it's one of the key things for the NSP, you know, to provide a non-judgmental place where people can reach out and know that there's no record kept. It's very confidential. Yeah, And this really frees people up to speak openly. Yeah, I don't think you get this kind of engagement anywhere else. Today we're talking to Nikki. She's one of those people I keep thinking I know from somewhere else. She's down to earth, friendly and very open with her story. We're finding so many of the people we speak to really feel privileged to be sharing their story. Mandy, I think it's because they know that people are going to listen and for most of their lives... No one's probably asked. Yeah, you know, or even seen past the drug using to who they actually are. All right, so let's meet Nikki. She's had some really big emotional upheavals in her personal life that has impacted on her drug use. Yeah, well, I was born and raised in Sydney. I'm 63 now. So I grew up in the good old 70s and 80s. So, um, yeah, I had a pretty tough upbringing emotionally. I dealt with a lot of emotional abuse from my mother who had a fairly significant mental illness. And um, so, yeah, that had a big effect on my life and how things uh, sort of went from my teens, I guess, and from my teens into my 20s was a very difficult time. So, and... Now I live up here and uh, things have been quite difficult for me in the past few years as well here, so. So, Nikki, can you tell me when you started using drugs, like as a, uh, you know, when that sort of first started for you? Okay, for me it was in my teens. I remember um, I was introduced to pills was a big thing back then and there was drugs around and the main one was Mandrax. Mandrax, a highly addictive central nervous system depressant. It's prescription medication that has a sedative and a hypnotic effect. It's the brand name for methaquilone. I got it. They were big in the 70s and also known as Mandy's. 
Oh, that was amazing time when they were around. Like you, you sort of spoke like a two-year-old and you fell over and you were covered in bruises. All the, I thought that was amazing. I thought that was the best fun. So that's when it started, I guess, for me. And, you know, I, and I really just stuck to that up until I guess I was about uh, 18 and I sort of played around a little tiny bit with heroin, just snorting it, but not a great deal. It tended to make me really sick, so it didn't really appeal to me that much. And then I became pregnant and I stopped. Nikki started using heroin with a close friend who was also a heavy drug user. I was madly in love with her, so I was quite happy to do whatever she did, being a young young girl. And so, yeah, I... um. Yeah, so that's how I how it found me, and but I didn't really like it, but I tended to do it anyway. So, what stepped you up to actually injecting to go that next well, that, step? That went. That came a long time after. Okay. Okay. So you know, I had my daughter. I stopped using the whole time. Then I started in my thirties, and I met. It was my late twenties. I, I met uh, a woman who I ended up in a relationship with for thirty years, and she was had been using since a teenager, and uh, that's when I started using it again. But I started injecting, then using needles then, and I loved it. Because it's such a bit, did, did you feel like, I mean, I guess at the time is that, did you have to keep um, your your drug use secret. Sort of secret from your family and friends and or, or were you part of a community at the from time? From my family I did. Yeah. Because they had no understanding of drugs at all, even though my mother took Valium like, they were lollies. It's yeah. bizarre, isn't it's it? It's a double standard, isn't it? That sort Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. prescribed drugs, okay. Your illegal drugs, not okay. Hmm. I don't get that at all. Yeah. But that's how people justify it to themselves, you know, that um, but the doctor gives it to me, yeah. so that's okay. It's legal. What you do isn't. So what was it when you first, you know, started using with your, your partner? Because it is, there is a real bubble that you go into. Yeah, together. yeah. So what... Did what changed for you? As I mean, imagine you're still a, you're still a mum, you're still functioning, yeah, doing everything. I guess what changed for me was where I was emotionally at the time, and at that time things were very difficult, and I I had because my whole life had been very had been I'd been abused emotionally for so long that I had a lot of issues about um, confidence, um, all, all of that self-esteem came into it, not feeling like I was worthy. So the first time I used a needle, because it's instant, you know, you don't have to wait, yeah. you know, straight away. So it's like this warm hug and suddenly the whole world seems like a better place. And I guess that's what does it, mm. where you go, this is this is the drug for me. So from a that yeah. personal emotional space, yeah. that sense of feeling yeah. um, accepted, if you like, so Perrin kind of ex- accepted you and you, you felt good about yourself, mm. so you kept going back for it. Yeah. So how, how regularly were you using at that point? Daily. Yeah. Yeah, every day. 
and that can be expensive doing that every day. Um, but, you know, there are other drugs too. Like I was using speed at the time and, you know, and then I also, I was also a chronic migraine sufferer. So the heroin really did come about as well because of the migraines, the pain. Like doctors, hospitals, they don't want to help. Migraines are like something that, you know, you imagine or it's just a bad headache. So I guess that did have a lot to do with it as well. Now I think about it. So um, for years, right up until I was 37, I had chronic migraines. So... And have they just naturally passed or something? What happened with the migraines? I started menopause at 37. And, wow, they, and, they, and they went. And they went. And they oh, went away. That's a bonus. Yeah. You should tell that to the medical fraternity, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, they went. So, and so yeah, so I did use up until then. And then my um, I got tired of using, it became expensive, you know. It started... Um, yeah, I started sort of looking at other people when I'd be out and about thinking, I just want my life back to be normal, yeah. whatever normal was. It's that waking up every day, isn't it? And yeah, to work it's a out. full-time job. How, how you how you going to yeah. score? Using is a full-time yeah. job, yeah. You haven't got time for anything else. You can't think about anything else. So it's about finding money. So at, we were just lucky because we had money and we were both working. There's a lot of stereotypes too about how people, and I know I, when I lived with um, a person with, who had a heroin addiction who who was an injecting user that all these stereotypes that I went, you know, I, w- I would never say he was lazy. He was no. up really early. Yep. He was out on the street, and when he came home, he cleaned the house. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you do. That's exactly what you do. It's motivating. Yeah, so th- this whole thing of that you're living in, I go, no, I don't think no. – I was living in, a, in an actually really beautiful kind of well-managed yeah. – you know, yeah, we, yeah. It, was, it was tight. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, the, as you say, the amount of focus and activity that goes into kind of just managing all that and yeah. having it happen every day is actually um, – you're kind of job ready. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. It's like so they are yeah. inherent skills that should the go down on your CV. Yeah, the moment your eyes open, you are thinking about how am I going to do this today? I've got to get this together. I've got to find the money. I've got to do this, this, that, and it's all about it. Yeah, so you were, I mean, you said you were working full time through yeah. through this. Um, did was there any? Did it affect your work at all? Did no. anyone at work know? I mean, no. How did you manage to keep those those really separate? Um, I would say because I kind of look at drugs and I think that everybody has their own drug that suits them, you know, and I think a lot of people use the wrong drugs for their temperament, personality, whatever. So for me, heroin did not affect me in any other way except to motivate me, get me up, get me to work, and I just functioned normally. So it was the right drug. It was the right drug for me. Whereas other drugs are not. I don't drink alcohol at all. Alcohol makes me really sick, just makes me want to go to sleep, puts me in a bad mood. So, I mean, I yeah. think, why would I want to do that? You know, I don't want to feel like that. Yeah. So tell me about um, when you decided at that point to stop using, what you were talking about, how you wanted to get your life back because you wanted to get away from the stress of trying to trying to score every day and working out how to get through so how did that change it? And within your relationship, did your partner go with you or yes, so you did it together? We both did. So well, she actually went first. Yeah. She went on the methadone program. 
and uh, it worked for her really well. So, and she was somebody who was using, like I said, from the age of 17 and had never stopped. So this was a big step for her. So she went on the methadone program and then I followed after that. And so I did not use again for 22 years. So Nikki didn't use for 22 years. It shows you never know what life has in store for you. You don't know that up ahead things are going to get pretty bloody tough. Yeah, extreme circumstances can mean you reach out for what you need to cope. You know, it makes you wonder what you would do in the same situation. I mean, what would you reach for? I remember hearing a family member had died in a really shocking way and, well, look, we hit the scotch pretty hard and it was only 11am and none of us were even scotch drinkers. You want to tell us a little bit about why, um, what led you back to using again now? So my partner in 2004 was diagnosed with breast cancer and she had her breast removed and so she fought a very long battle and she was fine, like her her cancer, she was cancer-free. In 2012, it came back in her bones, in her pelvis. And um, so this time there was no fighting it this time. And so she ended up going through, she went through a lot with that. She really fought very hard and they had written her off on a number of occasions, but she kept going. And then she ended up in Mullumbimby Hospital. She had a pain in her stomach. I took her there. They blamed it on the ca- on the cancer, of course, where it had nothing to do with cancer. She was actually constipated. Oh, really? From the from the pain medications and stuff. Yes, but they ignored that, and they didn't want to listen. And a lot of it had to do with her, I think, drug addiction, because it was all on her charts. She was on very high doses of morphine because of her tolerance Mm -hmm. and so, um, yeah, they didn't want to hear anything about it could be anything else but the cancer. So they ignored that. That's a really interesting um, point because we haven't really heard that, that notion of someone who has cancer, um, has a a history that's declared because it's on there, Um, how you're feeling that that actually affected her treatment. Did Up to that point, I mean, because she was getting cancer treatments along the way and different things, mm-hmm. do you think it affected that Absolutely. at all before that? Yes. So you think all the way along, whenever they, they didn't just see her as a cancer patient, they also had her absolutely labelled as 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 a, as a person who used used yeah. drugs or yeah. used, was yeah. using she was she wasn't using she had, wasn't she at that point back after the methadone. No, she did. Yeah. She did for a very short period of time only. Um, but it was only methadone. She never used any other drug but methadone. So she used a needle with her methadone, and that was all she did. But then once the cancer came back, she stopped everything. But that, because she was on methadone, that was all on her chart. So rather than investigate anything else that might be going on with her, everything was blamed on the cancer. So rather than looking at, like, at one point she had a stroke, but they wanted me to believe that she had cancer in her brain rather than go and give her a scan and treat her like they would treat anybody else. They didn't. So, Nikki, did she, did she, did the um, impaction of her bowel 
um, cause her to, to she died. Die. Yes, in in the hospital. In, they moved her to Lismore Hospital because I was kicking up such stink that I said if they didn't start treating her properly, that I would put her in the car and take her myself. That night, without even speaking to me, they moved her to Lismore Hospital. She rang me in the morning to tell me that they were giving her a colonoscopy and that they were going to try something during the colonoscopy. If it didn't work, she was going to have to have surgery. So what they had decided was to use the camera of the colonoscopy to unblock a loop in her bowel and they perforated her bowel and that killed her and um, it took her five days to die, a very painful death. And they, during that time, they, they were so cruel and uncaring and to me, I was treated not like I was her partner of 30 years. No way. They didn't even bother to speak to me about anything during her treatment at the hospital. And, um, yeah, so. Do you feel like with that, I mean, because it sounds like there's there's lots of things at play lots here, things, yeah. do you think that because you were um, a same-sex couple, um I can use that terminology, um, that there was a, another layer of prejudice. There were you many did. layers. So you got these multiple layers yeah. coming in. And you, you could feel, I mean, because that sounds like they weren't telling you and they weren't treating you like her, right. her long, yeah. long-term partner. That's right. Was that, there's that prejudice. There's the prejudice of her known drug use um, all coming into play. Yeah, it all came into play. It all came together like that. And it was the attitude, not of everybody, it was like not every doctor and not every nurse. Have you got any particular um, yeah, moments or stories or incidents where you can give us the language they used or what they didn't use or what where you felt like, oh, wow, that's it, there it is? Well, in intensive care when she was dying, I had doctors say to me, because um, when she when they after they did what they did to her and she was going to die, they wanted me to believe that she was there because of her own doing, that she was very, very sick before she came here and that she hadn't, um, you know, done all the things since 2004 that she should have done for her cancer, like she didn't have chemotherapy because she didn't want to have chemotherapy. So she'd made these decisions that they thought affected her to where she got to with her cancer, which is not the case at all. And they also wanted me to believe that um, she had died because of her, not, not because of what they did to her, but because of her cancer, that that's what killed her. Oh, that, yeah. So, and they wanted me to totally believe that, and I knew that was not the case. And then when all of that came into play was when they weren't giving her pain medications, when she was on life support, and they said that she'd had enough with her methadone, she didn't need anything extra. But you can tell when you're on methadone, you know when somebody's not getting enough. You know, you can tell by their skin, you can tell all different things. So they weren't giving her... The Were they giving her... When, when she was in intensive care, um, the reason I ask is actually because I, I used to be a registered nurse, yeah. right? I'm not yeah. not anymore. Yeah. But um, that... Were they still giving her 
her daily methadone while she was still in. No. The, so they, they basically took her off the methadone. They took her off the methadone. So she was also in a withdrawal state, yes. really. Yep. So she, there was no sort of um, drug plan, if you like, to manage manage the no. the withdrawal. And that's what I was asking them was, was she getting her methadone? They said she did not need it because she was getting enough drugs, other drugs. And I could see by looking at her, because, you know, you can tell my skin, you would know that, you know, goose pimples and all sorts of things. She was very restless. And um, I asked if they were getting her method and they said that she didn't need it and I didn't agree with that. You also know that you just can't come straight off methadone and that's going to impact on her ability to survive a perforated bowel. Yep. There is a whole regime for, yeah, for coming down absolutely. off methadone. Absolutely. So yeah. let's just um, go back to to you at this point. So you mm-hmm. said this was the point where you you started, started to using, using again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was absolutely devastated losing my partner like that, and um, yeah, it was very hard for me to to deal with that. And I felt very alone. Sorry, there's a hard question to Is this where ask. the heroin, is this where you used some heroin again? Is this goes back to that early story you spoke about where when you got the hug? Is that what it was? Yeah, was heroin it was, giving you the hug at that yeah, point? Yeah, absolutely. It was like, it was almost like something to look forward to. You know, when you haven't got that person there yeah. anymore. Well, it's not somebody to, I could rely on. It's not unusual. It's going to make me feel yeah, good. For, yeah. for people who lose someone who are grieving to go search for something, I mean, that's actually very, very normal for people. And to feel alone and feeling that emptiness of the house and the space is, is actually, that's, that's actually the normal side of it. Yeah. yeah. And we all search for something for, to do that. Yeah. How long did you, so when you started using again at that point, did you, did you, was that a daily thing you did? Did you yeah, keep doing that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got some money after I sued the hospitals for what they did and won that case. And I also got some insurance money. And um, so I had money at the time. Um, so, yeah, it allowed me to use huge amounts. And, um, yeah, so that's what I did. So, so for you now in, yeah. you know, coming back into using again, yeah. how have you kind of protected yourself? Because obviously you need to keep this private. Yeah, totally private. Yeah. Um, I keep to myself. I don't talk to anybody about what I do, don't do. Um, there's only a very a, a handful of people that, well, that did know at one point. I guess there's a few more now, but, um, yeah, I, I make a point of I, I don't, it's not like I go and do this with anybody else. It's, this is just me on my own. It's your, but is your social network, um, so you had, there was, when your partner was with you yeah. and, and she was alive, there was, did you have a, a kind of a broader social social group? Were you quite social well, We were in the Blue Mountains for 28 years yeah. and we came here, it's now 12 years ago. So our friends were more so up there and I'd been here since the, I came here in the 70s and the 80s where my daughter's father was born and raised and went to the Blue Mountains and came back. 
So we didn't know. We didn't because, you know, like she became very sick after we first came back here. So it was just we spent all our time together. And um, we did make a few friends, but um, nothing to do. Like, and, and neither of us were using at that point. Yeah. So you know, it was yeah, it was very different. This is this is me starting again after she's gone. So the people that I did know, I don't know, have anything to do with. After she passed away, it's like I couldn't cope with being around people. So can I ask, does your does does you know being someone who injects drugs does that ever impact on you accessing healthcare yourself and actually being totally honest with the doctor? No, I, I am more than happy to be honest with doctors now. I've decided that at 63, I can do what I'm not hurt anybody else. And I don't. The only person I'm not open with, of course, is my GP. Okay. So this bit's a little bit confusing, but I think what Nikki is saying is that she's happy to be honest with doctors, but not actually honest with her GP. So I have two doctors. Yeah. I have my methadone doctor, yeah. who I can be open with, and I have my GP, who doesn't know. Right. And that's because I don't want to be um, judged. I don't want to, things to be withheld from me just because of that. So this is really strategic, isn't it, to yeah. actually sort of to to split that. Yeah. So you got you, you've taken the. The, the management, if you like, mm-hmm. of pain and, yeah. and, and the, your use of drugs mm-hmm. to one, one doctor. Yeah. yeah. Which, so what you're saying is that by keeping it over there mm-hmm. and your GP who doesn't, it's not going to cloud any of their decisions right. about whether you're constipated or whether yeah, you're this right. or whether yeah. you're that. Yeah. They'll just look at you for, for the symptoms you present. For the reason yeah. I'm there. Yeah. Yeah. you've had yeah. two using periods mm-hmm. with a big gap in, yeah. in, in the middle. Has it changed? Like things like particularly in a small country town, accessing, you know, kind of needles and syringes, you, you know, the, you know, from going into a chemist, mm. you know, and having to, you know, have you had experiences of of being feeling discriminated or judged? Having pharmacists to go in? are they the worst? Are the worst? Are they? Can you tell me a little bit more dealers. about the experience you have getting of like a fit yeah, pack off a pharmacist? They love to lord that one over you. Talk at the top of their voice so everybody in the store can hear, wow. hear what they. Oh yeah, all the time. Um. Lectures. Lectures, like yeah. in the pharmacy mm. about. So now I have no problem in saying, letting them know I don't need a lecture from you. Yeah. You know, but yeah, they feel they have the God given right to say to you what they want to say. What, what does that feel like? Can I just ask, what, what does it feel like for someone to judge you um, with something that has nothing to do with them? Well, I think. If it was somebody that I respected, yeah. I guess I would be open and I would listen to what they had to say if it made sense to me. I'm not going to listen to somebody that's just, you doesn't know. Doesn't even know you. Yeah, doesn't know me. And um, pharmacists like to think they know you. Yeah. You know, they think that they know that, you know, they've got their finger on the button and they know what's going on, but no, they don't know. And, um, yeah, I find it... Pisses me off, number one. After that, I get, um, I guess I feel quite humiliated, especially when it's done in front of other customers. Yeah. You know, and when you see them treating the person next to you, the customer next to you one way and you a different way, 
It, you know, it's just not okay. It's just not okay by me, and I find it hard to shut my mouth. Well, it's yeah. interesting because it's in a, I mean, obviously a chemist, a pharmacy, I mean, mm. their job is to just, I mean, it's to dispense. That's right. Right? Yeah. They're not They're not the clinicians that you know, they don't diagnose. I mean, they might do some minor things along mm. the way when mm. people come in over the counter. Mm. So they're actually overstepping the mark. Totally overstepping the and, mark. And I think yes. there's one thing, because George is from Sydney, but I'm a regional girl like you are, and it's totally different when those people in that pharmacy end up in your life somewhere else in a bank queue, mm-hmm. at a lunch, in a cafe. In the supermarket in the, aisle. Yeah, in a supermarket aisle. Like it's really um, can be quite, you know, confronting. And pharmacies where you think you've gone on the methadone program to do clean your act up and try and get your life together and they're the ones that you see nearly every day and they're the first ones to have a go at you. Yeah, see, that has to change. That has to change. change. It has to, you know, yeah. yeah. You can't, you can't. And that's going to put people off wanting to do anything about their addiction if they decide they're going to do it, if the first port of call is... Is shame. Is shame, yeah. And And there are good pharmacists out there, you know, they do exist, but I'm yet to meet one. Whilst Nikki has some issues around feeling accepted at the pharmacy, here at the NSP, Nikki feels comfortable. Do, do you find that the needle and syringe programs offer you kind of a much better? Oh, it's, it's, it's necessary. Yeah. It's so important to have this. I love coming here. Yeah. I love coming here. It's How do you feel when you come here? What's, what's the experience? Great, because I know, I know that I'm going to have great chat and I know I'm going to be welcomed. and It's judgment-free. It's totally judgment-free. And, you know, you don't have to hide anything. You know, you can say and do what you know and they know what you're here for. So if you felt like you wanted to make changes or anything, this might be a starting place for that conversation, you know? Oh, completely, yeah. We often talk about that when I come here. Yeah. You know, we talk, I I can spend an hour or so here just chatting. Yeah. You know, it's really important. A place like this is incredibly important. Because it's not just, is it? It's not just about getting access to clean syringes. It's not that at all. It's it's um it's one of those places where you you, you know it, that's I guess what it was originally about yeah but it's become it's evolved into much more than that and it's about the people that work in them yeah you know and um, I guess that this particular one I love coming here because they are open. They don't have any kind of, you, you can see it on their faces that they don't think any less of you. Mm. And that's what I love. Yeah. That's fantastic. I think it's, yeah, pretty simple. Yeah. Well, well that's, that's how it should be. You know, the, yeah, yeah, that's good healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how it should be. For Darren at the NSP, it's all about respect. I like seeing people come in and you can see that they're really sort of quite afraid to to ask for things or to find out what we do and to just treat people really lovely and with respect and, and really be grateful for them to come in to get their equipment and seeing how they, that they suddenly stand up straighter and their shoulders get taller. And, you know, it, if you can imagine what it's like to, to go into, a, say, an ED department when you're in a queue of people asking for a fit pack, it is... One of the most awful things to ask for was the shame you feel, the people hearing you ask for it and the judgment that you face. And in, in an NSP, there's none of that. You know, we, we welcome people in, we treat them with respect. 
we give them exactly what they want. We can ask them and find out what equipment they're using and how they're using it and give them the best, you know, advice and, and stuff. Yeah. And it's great to see them sort of grow and, and stand up and, and, you know, how they should be treated. It's just fantastic. So we, we're talking about that, mm. that sense of non-judgment yeah. and non-judgmental language. Mm-hmm. So what sort of language would you like used around a person who uses uh, who, cho- who chooses to inject drugs? We I were mean, talking about the other day yeah. about you know because you know you know the what language that really hurts was like junkie, and how does how does that work? Because that's probably the most predominant word, isn't so it? So I'm going to tell you something, and this should wrap it up for you. Yeah, I had this one. This was in the Blue Mountains. A friend who was selling speed at the time. I went over, got scored my speeds, sat down to her kitchen table, started to mix it up, and she was standing behind me over my shoulder looking, and she said to me, she out of her mouth came, oh, I'm so glad I'm not a junkie. So she was the one who sold it to you. <laughs> wow. So, so, <laughs> I said, what? What do you mean? You're not a junkie? She went, well, I don't use needles. Oh, okay. Is that oh, yes. so on the hierarchy? Yes. The dealer was above the user. Yes, because she snorted it. She didn't use needles. Oh. She said it's interesting because I was trying to get my head around that, yeah, that notion of why why someone who injects is is the worst is so is it's is perceived, in our sense as. perceived as the worst. I know. So, why do you think that is? Do you know it never used to be like that. I think it's like, is it a generation thing? Can Do I dare say that? It say might be, yeah. yeah. It could be. Because sure. I think it is. Because I always go, now, hang on, junkie, junkie. Doesn't that word junk mean the drug? Yeah. Isn't that where that came from? Going to get my junk back in the 60s. Yeah. So, you know, junkie became, you know, person that uses drugs. But it is such a, it's one of those words that really hurt. It's a slur. It's used to, you know, put someone down. Well, and yeah. to diminish someone. That's right. Well, often yeah. those words are appropriated. It's just yeah. the, it's the same word, but the tone has changed, exactly isn't it? Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, the old thing about queers and, yeah. you know, lesos and dykes. I mean, yeah. you've got to take that word back. And, yeah, you've got to yeah. reclaim you've it. You've got to reclaim so, it. And that's you, what I do. Yeah, because that's yeah. how you, that's yeah. how you uh, diminish yeah. it. Yeah. Yep, yeah. that's right. And that's the only way to do it, I think, and that's what I do. So, yeah, I just, if I hear that and it's used like that, I jump on that one real quick. Yeah. I hate the way that people use that. Being an injecting drug user can be very isolating. Often the fear of the judgment of others means that people just don't open up about who they are and what their challenges might be. So that when they need the support of their community, they can actually end up being quite alone. I feel hurt by friends. Yeah. That's who I feel really let down. Yeah. I feel unsupported by friends who have taken from me when I had things to give and mainly money. And they happily hung around and took that and enjoyed that. And after that have just abandoned me and have used my drug use to, um, yeah, to put, they feel to put me in my place, you know. And th- that's they, how it feels And they me. weren't drug users. They were drug they users. They were drug users. Some were, yeah. some, some weren't. weren't. Yep. And um, they all, all of them smoked pot and drank alcohol 
and some of them used heroin and ice, whatever they wanted to use. Didn't bother me, but heroin, big, big deal. Nikki works every day. Part of the perception of someone who injects drugs, particularly heroin, is that they don't work. So is that something Nikki has experienced? Oh, yeah. yeah. And somebody the other day said, I know you're not a um, junkie because your teeth are too good. Oh, oh wow. wow. How's wow. that one? You've got to have rotten teeth. Isn't that? There's a picture, and isn't it? Of yeah. Yeah, and unemployed, yeah. And that's not real. Because it actually. So, t- right so maybe tell me, what, what, do, what would you say mm-hmm. with X with, you know, two quotation marks, does the community think a junkie looks like? Okay. They're dirty. Yeah. They've got rotten teeth. They're homeless. They steal. So they're, um, you can pick them a mile away. That's what I have sat at a cafe at a table with a group of people who were talking about junkies. How does that, how do you manage and, and that? They do, and I, they don't do burn. I was at the end. Oh, I, I couldn't do it. I, bet, I, bet. I couldn't do it. I had now, to say it. Now tell me, what did they do? Like, what happened? They got, they just, their jaws just hit the table like that and they were like, no. You caught them out. I did and I really enjoyed it and I waited right for the right moment <laughs> and before I said it and I was like, yes. Did they ask for the details? Like what do you take? What no, do you I think they were so um, shocked that they didn't know what to say to me. They yeah. had seen me at this place every day. I had just used to sit there and have my coffee and, you know, whatever. And they had this, it was just, it went on and on, this conversation about junkies and how dirty they were and this. So I just had to at the end. I just thought, I can't, I can't not say anything here. I have to. So I did. And I felt really good when I got up and walked away. Yeah. Because I didn't, it wasn't open for discussion at that point. What I, didn't I, I need well, to nothing. educate them yeah, either. And I wasn't yeah. there for them to say anything back to me. I didn't care what they had to say. It was like I just wanted to say that and I just got up and got my car. You it, bust over to yeah. you. Were, yeah. yeah. And it stops people because I think that, that's one of the common um, social narratives, I think, is that um, there's no space in the story for functioning, that there's a functioning um, participatory community members who may also inject drugs. That's right. Like, And it's kind of go, no, 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 no. No, you've got to be heading for a rock bottom. Mm. You've got, isn't that, mm. and it, I Absolutely. guess it's disruptive. That's yeah, that's not the case at all. Yeah. There are, you, you would be surprised at who yeah. does yeah. use drugs, inject drugs, that yeah. is. And, um, yeah, it's, yeah, and nothing surprises me. Like that, I'm just, you know, like I, I, I try really, I don't judge people. I hope I don't judge people. I just think people do what they want to do for whatever reason they want to do it and let, and let them be. Yeah. You know, just let them be. What does it matter to anybody else what I do? Well, it's like, you know? it's like anything. If, yeah. if, if someone's doing you harm, like yeah. you're doing me harm, I'm going to have something to say about yeah, it, right? Absolutely. But if you're not, yeah. do what you do, yeah. live your life, that's yeah. fine. It's not affecting yeah. me. You're not asking anything of no, me. You're just no. doing it. I suppose that's, that's really what you're asking that's it. for society yeah. to do with yeah. you and then you could be more open, I suppose, about it. Mm. 
but that's not ready for that yet. No, no it's not ready not, for that not, yet. Not no, this country. No, no. We're very behind. Yeah, very behind. Thank you so much, Nikki. You've been Pleasure. a really, really fabulous storyteller. It's, it's been great hearing mm. just your views and your just your experience of of um, using and and the system and how the system supports you in one way when you come to a place like this and how it it really goes against you in another place. Yeah. yeah. That's the Daily Dose for today, and you were just listening to Nikki's story. Next episode, we speak with Luke, an Indigenous man who talks about cultural stigma and how he came to be drug-free. Needle and Syringe Programs, NSPs, are an evidence-based public health program funded to reduce the individual and community harms associated with injecting drug use. Over the last 30 years, NSPs have proven to be very successful in preventing the spread of HIV and viral hepatitis in Australia and globally. To find out more about harm reduction and the strong body of evidence that supports these policies, programs and practices, you can visit the website harmreductionaustralia.org.au. To find out more about childhood trauma and its impacts on individuals and the community, you can visit the Blue Knot Foundation website, www.bluenotknot.org.au.